So we've got two main strategies for our investments. As you mentioned, the value add, which is a typical one that you know, most people have heard of, it's usually a property that's 10 to 40 years old. You go in, upgrade the interiors with a eight to $20,000 renovation for new surfaces and appliances and lighting package and flooring and fixtures. And you do the common areas, the amenity spaces, the gyms, the dog parks, the kids areas, the clubhouses. Also, of course, all deferred maintenance, um, roofs and asphalt and landscaping. And so that's been a big part of our business, um, a lot of value add. And then probably 11 years ago or 10 years ago, we started doing some core plus, which these are newer properties that are built in the last 10 years. So you still have the opportunity to make some small improvements to the interiors and common areas, but it's mostly either areas that have a lot of job growth coming, a lot of potential for growth, and maybe where there's a management team or a company that's been a little asleep behind the wheel and we can bring in our management team and, and, and really make some changes. So we have been doing a lot of those as well. And both have been very, very strong performers, especially this cycle where multifamily has just really shined. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube, Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate firm in the great state of Texas. We buy class B industrial across all the major markets. We are committed to technology. We have a world-class culture and more than anything, we are a forward thinking company. If you wanna stay in the know on all things going on at Fort Capital, visit us at fortcapitallp.com follow us on LinkedIn, or subscribe to this podcast. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. Enjoy the show. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Let's kind of set the stage um, with kind of the story of kind of your career and what MG Properties is today and kind of how it evolved to where it is today. Sounds great. Um, I am the managing director for MG Properties today, and I grew up in a family business focused around multifamily real estate investing. We are fully vertically integrated and have been since the beginning. So we buy existing apartment communities. And we either do some form of value add, bring in our management company, and um, typically do seven to 10 year holds and been expanding our territories through the last 30 years. And so the, the business was founded when I was around five years old, and I got to see it grow from a 32 unit property in North San Diego to 25,000 units today. And I've had various roles um, throughout the last uh, 20 years. 
with um, on-site maintenance and management and moving into corporate positions as well. So got to touch on a little bit of every part of the business and uh, happy to dig in further. Yeah. When we were chatting uh, the first time we chatted, and there's a lot of folks that listen to this and, and folks that have been on is there something your dad did like early on that, that kind of got you interested in the business, whether it was, you know, kind of tagging along or how did he include you to kind of make you interested in an early age? Or was it something that you just kind of took upon yourself? When the business first started, it was, it was out of our house. So just always <laughs> seeing my, my father, um, working at the business and the weekends were the time for acquisitions. It, w- it was before the internet. So you needed to go look at the newspaper, see what was for sale, drive around. And um, he would incentivize me to come along with a little bit of uh, a bonus structure where it was 10 cents per unit plus $5 for any deal that we would buy. So my first commission came, um, it was uh, (laughs) $9.20 on a uh, 42-unit deal in Oceanside when I was eight. And we used to have a lot of fun. There would also be some... uh, Popeye's chicken in those trips and some some places that you know we got to spend a lot of good time together. So in, in my mind, I always knew I was going to work in the business. I've loved it since I was uh since I knew what it was. Um but um I don't know if that's the case for everyone. I do have two siblings that did similar paths and both decided it was not for them. Yeah, yeah. When, when did the business actually go? What, what, did your dad leave a prior career to get into real estate or did what, did he have a career in real estate kind of started as a place to put money? And then like, when did it become a full-time deal that, that, you know, started in your house, but then grew on? Yeah. So uh, Mark was, uh, he was an accountant in the eighties tax accountant, and he saw tons of tax advantages to real estate. And he saw what the market was doing in terms of appreciation and, and all the opportunity that uh, that comes with with real estate. So um, he broke away from accounting in '88 and then uh, started doing some small real estate projects. Officially, you know, founding our business in '92. Um, it wasn't out of our our home for for too long. It grew very quickly. We did about 40 deals mm-hmm. all in San Diego for the first eight years, and then in 2000. That's when we started going to new markets all over California, into Oregon, Washington, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado. So we are focused on um, six major Western states today. I love it. All right. Before we dive into to what's going on today, can you? what do you do today? What does your job entail and what do you oversee? So um, as managing director, I oversee the um, major departments. Um, spending most of my time on company strategy, equity and debt, and acquisitions and dispositions. Okay. All right. Let's start with um, kind of the markets that you participate in. So you started in California. Um, Let's just go a little deeper. What markets are you in and kind of why have you chosen those markets? Is it proximity or is there something about them? Yeah. So San Diego, obviously our home, and we know it the best, and, and, and that's where we started. San Diego is a very low traded market. So, you know, about eight years into the business, if we wanted to grow, we needed to expand. Um, you know, rough numbers on um, apartment sales for San Diego, there's probably 15 to 20, 100 unit or larger sales in San Diego, 
where if you look at a Phoenix, you're in the 150 range. So wow. it, it, we, we, we quickly needed to expand and uh, we did it by car at first. So we went up to the Inland Empire, San Bernardino, Riverside County, Orange County, LA County. So that was all we could drive to. We could still, you know, go tour properties, find properties. Then California in general is a low trading market. So we needed to expand out. And that's when we went to Arizona. As I mentioned, just, you know, there's a lot more opportunity for deals. And as time went on, um, we added a market every five to 10 years. So we just kept growing, expanding. We do our own property management. So we want to get to 2,000 units in a specific market. So we have economies of scale with our management team, with expenses. So we've got 2,000 plus units now in each one of our individual markets. Okay, w- let's start with um, why are they low traded markets in general? It is the ownership entities and structures that own them. So um, very long-term family ownership in San Diego and many areas of, of California, where these are long-term cash flow family legacy assets that never sell. So, um, for example, um, the Conrad Prebis portfolio that sold earlier this year in San Diego, Conrad Prebis was the largest San Diego owner, and he never sold any properties in his life. He passed away. He had a great career. He was, you know, very philanthropic and has a great reputation. Um, and so his estate sold his entire portfolio, but that was the first time that thousands and thousands of units ever had the opportunity to be purchased in 40 years. So it's mostly um, because of the private nature of ownership, mm-hmm. where some of these higher trade markets um, have more institutional ownership and um, they trade more often. So it's just a very privately held market in San Diego and California. On the multi side, is it similar to, I guess, a from the little I know, single family where property tax values stay locked in at the at the year they were bought or because it's kind of an investment rather than a residence's property tax values move quicker? Nope, they stay locked in. So um, that is, uh, they can only go up a certain percentage, very similar to the, you know, the rest of the real estate in California. So that is a big advantage too as well. Okay, so you guys know the San Diego market really well. Obviously, probably know all the the players and who owns what. Um, when something like that portfolio is coming to market, I know you have home field advantage. How quickly is it, or how soon do you kind of know that's becoming in play? Whereas maybe the rest of the country has really no idea. Relationships and reputation have been super important to us, and we we want to always make sure that we do what we say and. Um, We've got a lot of broker and principal relationships. So I would hope and I think that we definitely get a, a head start on on most of these transactions and yeah. have a good understanding of the ownership and, and who owns where and what's going to sell when. So um, for that large premise portfolio, which we were not awarded, Blackstone was the <laughs> buyer of that one. Um, we did uh, pursue it hard as well. Blackstone is very tough to compete against. Um, but, um, we, you know, we had a good head start. We knew all the assets. We were able to drive all the assets before that they went to market. And, um, and so relationships are just so important to this business as you know. Yeah. 
if Blackstone has it their way, they're going to own this entire country before they're before they're done. They they pretty much have to with how much money they're raising. Yeah, no, yeah, I've heard some massive, massive numbers that they're raising per month, and that's just on the equity side. So when they get the debt, they're going to be buying everything this year. It's unbelievable. Um, okay, one more question on kind of California. D- does LA and San Diego have fundamentals that are different? I know they're you know both in California, but do they? Is there something about each market that that stands out as being different? Yeah. Yeah. Every market has uh, different fundamentals for sure. Um, every county even. So um, even um, Inland Empire, Riverside, San Bernardino County, very business friendly, tons of logistics jobs, tons of uh, industrial jobs. We've loved owning there. LA has a very diverse workforce. There's tons of businesses there. Um, but you know, it's a little bit harder to be an owner. It's more resident friendly. There's some political risk. There's more rent control. San Diego is kind of in the middle of those. So it's not, um, it's not, there's not as much rent control risks in our mind as in LA, Mm -hmm. but every county is, is super unique. And, um, you definitely want to, um, understand your overall market as well as your sub market. I'm in Texas, so we don't, you know, like the word rent control is, is kind of foreign down here. But when you're underwriting political risk, like how do you underwrite it? Do you assume it's not going to get better? It's just going to slowly, you know, more regulations are coming or is, is there a way that you can kind of get comfortable with it um, or something that you know because you're in the market that, you know, a Texan showing up might freak out about? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one. It's, it's hard to get comfortable with it um, just because it is unpredictable so you know we just know it's not going to get better in our business model where we buy only existing stabilized already cash flowing assets it has actually probably helped us over the last 30 years because it's been so hard to develop and takes so long to get entitlements and permits and there's projects that take 10 plus years to build a simple two three hundred unit community so it's actually probably helped us as an existing owner, but um, it is a uh, it's something where that was another reason that we wanted to expand out of California. We love California. We still buy in California. We just bought there again, and we'll buy there for the foreseeable future. But we also want to have exposure for our partners with diversification in different markets and markets that maybe are a little bit more business friendly. We haven't ventured out to uh, Texas yet, but it's been a strong market. And from everything that I hear, it's been a, a great place to invest too. We welcome you whenever you're ready. We'll, we'll be there. <laughs> um, okay. One um, one more on market. And then I want to talk about kind of 1031 and cost seg and some of the stuff y'all do there. But you kind of just touched on it. But if you took like an Arizona versus a California, what are the benefits to California versus Arizona? And maybe, you know, what are some of the things that you like more about Arizona than California? Each has its own positive kind of nuances. Yeah. So um, Phoenix was the best performing multifamily market in the country this year. I think it was last year, too. It's just been on fire for rent growth and just tons of businesses moving there. Very business friendly. and with that comes a lot of new development too. So there is a ton of 
new development that's going to be there. And, and that is one of the biggest risks to investing in Arizona. We still love it. We bought three deals there last year. We have 4,400 units there, and it's been an absolutely great market for us for 20 years. California was a little slower over the last year as um, there's more regulations, um, there's more COVID shutdowns, and um, things have just been a, a little bit slower to recover. We do think that will lead to some California opportunities where pricing will look very attractive in comparison to Arizona. The cap rates used to be lower in California than Arizona, obviously, but now they're very similar, if not inverted. Wow. So you'll, yeah, you'll see 80s, 90s product going for 400 plus a unit in, in um, Arizona. And you'll see 80s, 90s project less than that in California. So we do, we do feel that there's going to be some opportunities in both. Just really want to understand the, the locations and um, the specific submarkets of each deal. Yep. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we are able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. When we started to look under the hood of these real estate investment managers that were telling us about their problems, one of the things that we identified was that kind of the operating system of record for managing a lot of the most important information was still spreadsheets. They have never been designed to be a system of record, right? And and when we when we started looking at kind of why real estate reporting was the way that it was, what we found is that spreadsheets were being used as a system of record. And the problem that that created was it makes it really hard to take this information, get the information out of spreadsheets, and get it into the hands of the people who need it the most, which are your investors. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. Y'all buy existing and we can talk about the two different type of strategies you have, value add and kind of core plus. And then, so explain that and then explain why you've chosen not to get into to development. It goes back to the beginning, why we did not get into development and um, a story with my father. So in 88, when he broke away from accounting, he bought a two-unit deal that he was going to turn into four units. And that was going to be the first deal. And he did it and it went well. He saw that all the work that went into development and how much it cost, he could just buy the properties and, and it would be less time, less expense. So after that first one, he said to himself, we are not going to do any development and we've never looked back. So we have not done any development um, since then or since the, the beginning of our company. And um, we really pride ourselves on um, if it works, let's continue to keep it working. So we have done 175 deals in the last 30 years with everyone's had a positive return. We've never lost any capital. So going into a new business model has not crossed our mind um, yet. Yeah. Never say never though, because uh, 
the pricing today um, also is starting to get above replacement cost for the first time in history. Yep. Then let's talk about value add and core plus. Kind of how do you define each strategy and, and why? Why? Um, yeah. How do you define each strategy? Sounds good. Yeah. So we've got two main strategies for our investments. As you mentioned, the value add, which is a typical one that you know most people have heard of, it's usually a property that's 10 to 40 years old. You go in, upgrade the interiors with a eight to $20,000 renovation for new surfaces and appliances and lighting package and flooring and fixtures. And you do the common areas, the amenity spaces, the gyms, the dog parks, the kids areas, the clubhouses. Also, of course, all deferred maintenance, um, roofs and asphalt and landscaping. And so that's been a big part of our business, um, a lot of value add. And then probably 11 years ago or 10 years ago, we started um, doing some core plus, which these are newer properties that are built in the last 10 years. So you still have the opportunity to make some small improvements to the interiors and common areas, but it's mostly either areas that have a lot of job growth coming, a lot of potential for growth, and maybe where there's um, a management team or a company that's been a little asleep behind the wheel and we can bring in our management team and, and, and really make some changes. So we have been doing a lot of those as well. Um, and both have been very, very strong performers, especially this cycle where multifamily has just really shined. Yep. Are y'all have twenty five thousand units? Um, do you have an average of how many units you're kind of adding per year? Yeah, we do. Um, I would, on average, we buy about twelve to fourteen deals per year, and the average unit counts between two and three hundred. So we're adding a, a couple thousand units per year, but we're also selling deals every year too. So net, probably. Two to three thousand a year we're adding yeah. with the ones that we're selling, and we do ten thirty one exchanges, which I think we'll get into in a little bit, and then um, that's that's with that twelve to fourteen that we're buying. Got it. We'll get there in, in one second. I kind of want to set the stage real quick. I, companies like this fascinate me uh, because I know probably how robust your deal team is. So if you're buying twelve to fourteen deals a year. How many deals are you seeing? How many are you underwriting? And I kind of want to use this little segment as like, how does a deal make it through to, hey, we're doing this and we're closing? Like, what's that process look like inside of MG Properties? So on the investments team, I'll start there. We've got about eight full-time on just the acquisition side. So three that you know oversee two states each. Those are our deal managers looking at every off-market, on-market deal that, that happens. You know, we have a long criteria of things that, that are going to work for us. And if they do, we underwrite them. And then we've got another three analysts under them. And we also have our, our CIO as well, who, who helps run the team there. So last year, we looked at a little bit over 500 deals. And we had a bigger year last year than, than most. We bought 16 deals. But um, I would say we're really trying to pick that best 12 to 14 of the 500 deals. If it makes sense in the way that it was built, the location, um, a bunch of other factors, school district, access to jobs and things, then we go through the underwriting process, 
We have our investment committee meetings every Tuesday. That's where we go over the deals, maybe 20 to 30 deals a week. And um, eventually you go through the bidding process in today's market and you go to a best and final interview and uh, you're, you're interviewed to buy these deals today. It's just so competitive. The market is nothing like we've seen before. So again, it goes back to relationship where we did an analysis over the last 10 years and over 80 to 85% of our deals have been with repeat sellers. So mm-hmm. it's just so important to have that purchase sale agreement already ready. They know who you are, that you can raise the equity, you can get the debt, you're going to get it done. So um, yeah, you go th- it's, a, it's a very, very competitive market out there. Yep. So, so the deals are coming in and like they go to investment committee once and investment committee kind of gives, Hey, thumbs up, keep working on this deal. What are reasons like a deal might come into investment committee that looks good. And then it's like, okay, uh, it actually doesn't meet our criteria, move on and and we'll wait till next week to see what surfaces, um, kind of come next week. Yeah. So if it comes, if it comes through to investment committee and it gets the first approval, yeah. it's it's going to come down to returns then at that point. Um, so if we just get outbid and the, and the returns get too low, then it's, you know, it's time to move on. If it comes to investment committee where it's a more questionable deal, yeah, then it, you know, might have to do with either the way it was built or the age. And we, we, we buy deals in every, uh, in every age and we have a full construction management team, about 30 people on the, um, construction management team at our company. We have 750 total employees with most of them actually at the property doing the the daily tasks. But if it's, you know, a galvanized plumbing or, uh, you know, some kind of um, asbestos issue or expense issue that could, that could come up. Um, And also area specific as well. If we dig into the area, maybe it's a little bit too high crime for us. We want to kind of focus on bringing B minuses to B pluses. That's been our, our sweet spot. Yep. If, if something on like the construction side or the physical nature of the buildings comes up, does that, is there construction somebody in investment committee or is it usually kicked out to them to say, Hey, give us an opinion before we can make, you know, a judgment on this. They're not in the investment committee. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get the opinion from them. Um, also from our asset management team too, they build the stabilized budgets for us too. So um, before we get awarded a deal, you know, yeah. we, we, as I mentioned, you know, we're not going to retrade. So we want to be fully committed to the deal. So we have a lot of different people looking at every deal when it comes down to that best and final process, which on an average week, we're probably in four best and finals a week. I love it. The party never ends. No. Yeah. We've, we've, We've uh, told the the company story a few times now. Yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate you telling it again today. Um, yeah. All right. You guys have been awarded a deal. Let's just talk a little bit about capital raising. Uh, how do y'all do it and where do y'all get your money from? Historically, most of our equity comes from high net worth family and friends. That started off with uh, just um, both my grandparents and my dad's two friends on the first deal. And then it's been all word of mouth. We, we don't do any kind of advertisement or, or anything. So 30 years of family and friend growth, uh, it compounds pretty quickly. So we got about 1,500 partners now, and we um, can raise um, 80 to 100 million per deal. 
And, you know, we're doing, we're placing about 800 million a year with some of that from 1031 exchanges. Um, so if they're all one-off syndications where we get a, a, a large group of investors after we send out the uh, preliminary investment offering. And that's been 80% of our business. 20% has been institutional. So we've done a few deals with Blackstone and Intercontinental and Rockwood and a few other groups as well. And those deals are usually a little bit shorter term holds that are more focused on um, the end return than the cash on cash. On our private high net worth group, we our main focus is cash on cash returns, especially with the depreciation from the properties because that cash on cash distribution, if it's tax deferred, is so valuable to someone's portfolio. Yep. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, CREmodels.com. That is the letter C, the letter R, the letter E, models.com. If you aren't familiar with CRE Models, they are a real estate financial modeling and due diligence firm that specializes in bringing an institutional process to small and mid-sized firms who are raising capital. Because of their extensive experience with large clients, they really make it easy to look professional and polished when raising debt and equity capital. If you have a substantial deal pipeline, use CRE Models for expert due diligence, lease abstracts, financial models, physical due diligence, books and records, and more. They can handle any property type from multifamily to commercial to self-storage or really anything. With CRE Models, we send them all the financial info we have on a deal and they will review and tell us what is missing. This really allows us to focus on the deal structure and we can trust them to jump in as they're an extension of our own firm. You can get in touch with CRE Models at CREmodels.com or call them at 201-252-7487. When you talk to them, remember to ask about their 360 degree analysis team and the real estate technology integration services as well. And now back to the show. All right, let's talk about the 1031. I think this is fascinating. So a lot of these deals might have, I don't know, 20, 30, 100 investors. Um, I'm just kind of guessing, but there's lots. And you go to sell. The first thing that comes to my mind is before you go to sell, one, have you identified something else usually prior to selling? And two, do you is it just kind of assumed that every investor is going to roll forward? Obviously, the more investors in a deal, the more kind of situations and opinions they might have. So how do you all kind of balance that out? Yeah, no, it's been a, it's been a growing process and evolving process. So, um, you know, in the beginning, you know, there was less people per deal and it was easier to, to figure out. Now we, we have two to 400 investors per deal. Okay. So definitely, definitely gets a little bit more complicated. You know, just like any limited partnership, you can sell your interest at any time. So um, we can sell the interests of the limited partners that do not want to exchange and replace them with other investors. Mm. So even though 90 to 95% of people do exchange with us, um, for the five to 10 that don't, we can sell their interests and um, it's no problem. And it's been a, a good structure that we've been doing for 30 years. So yeah, we, we exchange or at least give the option to exchange every time we sell. Got it. And then as far as identifying, is it typically a decision to sell then identify or identify and then sell or somewhere in between? 
So with how active we are and with the timelines on the 1031 exchange where you have 45 days to identify and 180 days to close, it has not been an issue to find a property because you know we are always closing a property within that time frame. So we make the decision at the beginning of the year what properties we're going to sell and it does not affect what we're buying. But when those properties sell, whatever we're buying at that time, it, the 1031 exchange money gets the priority. So um, it's been a process that um, we don't need to time it too much just because we always have deal flow. Yep. Talk about just for a second, uh, 1031 is obviously tax deferral, um, but what's the cost seg portion of your business, which you also kind of mentioned is, is a key component for investors? Yeah, so that 1031 is a super valuable um, tax benefit of real estate investing, and so is the depreciation on these properties. And the cost segregation depreciation allows you to accelerate a lot of it, most of that depreciation in the first year. So it gives huge passive losses that investors can use for other passive income they have. So it's a big benefit for either our income or other passive income they have. So we've been doing cost segregations uh, studies and, and accelerated depreciation since the beginning. And it's it's been a really, really valuable um, uh, benefit for our partners. And usually all the depreciation for an apartment community, if you do cost segregation, is done around year nine. So that's also played into our seven to 10 year hold. So we can go into a new property and get a lot more depreciation. Y'all close on something. What are those? Uh, let's, let's take just more the value add where probably there's a little more work to be done. What does that first 90 day playbook look like on some of these deals when you're closing a value add project? So our average community is around 250 to 300 units. So, and we don't, we don't kick anyone out or, or force anyone out. So um, we're doing eight to 10 unit renovations per month, which can take a few years. So the interiors, we usually start right away. We're doing thousands and thousands of interiors a year. So we've got uh, a clear scope down and usually everything's been pre-ordered and ready to go. So we'll, we'll start on the interiors right away. Then on the exteriors and the common areas, we like to get all those done in the first 18 months with permits and you know picking out everything that needs to be done. Um, that first 90 days is usually just figuring out next steps. Mm -hmm. But for um, all the major projects, first 18 months, everything done, and then eight to 10 units a month for interior, that usually gets us done you know, within two to four years. And then we still have that last three to four years of, of cash flow. Yep. When you think about Phoenix, highest rent growth in the country, rents were moving, I think we talked about 10 to 25%. Does that ever change your plan when you're like, man, we don't even have to do anything and rents are moving 25%? Or do you look at that as maybe we can get to 30% if we still execute our plan? Does rent growth change maybe a, a prior thesis? It does. It does change it. So yeah, so every quarter we have a quarterly investment management meeting and we go through every property and see, you know, what is the rent growth? How are the renovations working compared to market? What's the difference between a renovated unit and an unrenovated unit? So we are, we are analyzing on a yearly basis. And, you know, just like when, when 
COVID hit and we stopped renovations thinking that the market was going to go down. Um, we started them quickly back up after we saw the trends that that happened. But um, yeah, we are we are analyzing on a on a yearly basis. Got it. Or a quarterly basis. All right. One of my favorite parts about our pre-call was, um, and I had to do like a retake when you first said, as you said, I visit every property two to three times a year. And if you only owned like three properties, that would have sounded more normal, but you own a lot of properties. Why do you do that? And and, and it's not just to put eyes on the property. You had a, a great um, you know reason for wanting to go check everything out. Yeah, no, it's it's very important to us to uh, to visit the properties and the teams and 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 two times a year. I wish it was three times a year, okay, but two. yeah, two times a year. Yeah, is what we is what we get to uh, every property. Um, you know, our team members and we want to treat them like family, and they are the ones that are really keeping this business running and keeping these investments performing at at the top ability. So. Um, visiting them, seeing the appreciation that they have for um, you know, our business and, and their work and how much pride they have is just so important. So um, that has been a big uh, val- core value of ours uh, since the beginning. I love it. When, when you're yeah. out there, besides seeing the people, is there something specifically from just like a property standpoint that, that you want to get out of it? Is there anything you're looking at or is it just kind of property by property? For future acquisitions too, we want to make sure that we understand every market. So seeing the trends in rents, the trends in new construction, really understanding the um, submarket and you know why the property is performing the way it is. We 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 sit down with the whole team. We go over the numbers, the budget, the, to make sure that you know we are um, hitting our NOI numbers and and staying on budget. So it's a little bit of um, making sure that the property is performing the way that we want to having a ownership um, executive level eye on the property and then understand the market where we want to be purchasing, um, you know, sticking with the Phoenix theme. We bought a deal in Ahwatukee three years ago, which is a suburb that we've targeted for a long time. And when the next deal that came in that sub suburb came up, we, knew we really, really wanted it just because we saw the trends that were happening there. We were going to, we were going to buy it. Um, yeah, pretty much wherever it went. And we purchased that one in January of last year of 21 Had it about a year now. And we're very happy that we did. We would love to buy there again as well. So, um, really, um, three main reasons. So there would be the checking in on the property, having that, you know, another level of, of, um, eyes on it, seeing the market, understanding where we want to buy and looking for future deals, and then um, valuing our, our team members who make these properties run. All right. If you're a broker in Phoenix, in I think you said Wachatucci, um, I'm probably botching that. Bring him a deal. And uh, you can send the Fort Podcast a small commission check for making it happen. We'll call it, we'll call it even. Awatuki is, is a big target for us. If you have anything, please send it my way. <laughs> I love it. Um, real, real quick, just on you're doing thousands of units. Obviously, you have economies of scale and pricing power, but and then we've talked about budget a bunch of times. We're living through kind of inflation. We're living through supply chain shakeups. Um, is there anything? Uh, maybe we don't have to go w- with what's happened. I think everybody kind of understands we're in, we're in a little bit of a pickle. 
are you starting to see things uh, loosen up again and maybe things are um, feeling normal or is it still kind of choppy on, um, you know, just regular supply chain issues? It's a little bit better on the supply chain issues. There's still some issues, but the main challenge that we're seeing, which I'm sure a lot of people are seeing is on the hiring. So just really tough to get people to stay, to find good talent. And, um, you know, a lot of people out sick very often and, and different types of quarantine rules in different states and, and really hard to keep your pulse on all the changing rules. So that's been the biggest challenge of the year is on the hiring. And um, I, we do see that getting better here soon. Yeah. Um, we just haven't, we haven't experienced it really improving yet. Okay. Third party, uh, y'all self-manage everywhere. And you said you try and get to 2000 units. Um, I'm assuming just the 2000 units gives you nice economies of scale to have a kind of profitable property management arm in that kind of market with market expertise, et cetera. When you just start in a market, are you always self-managing or do you start with third parties? We always self-manage it. We've never done third-party management. So when we have entered a new market, we have entered it quickly. So, um, you know, all the markets that we've entered, we've gotten to our 2000 mark pretty much within a year. So um, the first deal has to be a very, very perfect deal for us to enter a new market. And it's usually a, a larger, newer asset. And we can quickly add on to that to get to the 2000 mark relatively quickly. So that's three to four deals for us. Okay. Y'all have focused, we've talked a lot about class B. We've kind of talked about this core plus model, which maybe we call that class A minus. There's a new kind of, uh, there's a new cowboy in town, whatever you want to call it, single family rental. Is that on y'all's radar? And whether it is or it isn't, is it on your radar from a standpoint of it's actually putting a dent in co the competitive landscape of whether folks are living in multifamily or single family rentals? Good question. You know, it's a very, very hot topic. It's been a great performer. It's not something that we've been focusing on. They do not have a lot of single family rental communities on the West Coast in Seattle, Oregon, California. The land is too expensive to make it pencil. So we don't have those type of communities. In Vegas and Phoenix, they do have those communities. We've been underwriting them. And um, I could see us buying some of those types of communities for sure. Um, horizontal apartments, they're basically run the same way. Um, but uh, I mean, they've just been some aggressive cap rates and there's some there's a lot of money that's chasing that that type of investment. So I don't know if we'll end up being the most competitive, but I do think it's a really strong investment class and there's a great thesis behind the investment. Yeah. So it's just not scaling as quick. So you're not seeing, man, we would have captured this renter, but they went single family instead, even in that Vegas or Arizona market. There's there's kind of no, it hadn't put a dent yet. No, we haven't seen that in, in our performance yet. Yeah. Um, it's uh more desirable for some to you know have that kind of feel but i think a lot of them might also just feel that it's a similar um apartment community vibe but just um with no one above you because yeah. i know that a lot of them actually have the walls still attached i have to go 
regress a second. You're the first person, I think, in 194 episodes that's investing in Vegas. When I think of Vegas, I, it's a two-day trip. I'm on the strip. I'm in and out. There's obviously a ton going on and a lot of uh, workers that are facilitating that. What else drives the Vegas market besides kind of the entertainment, or is it just the entertainment? I'm I'm just pulling up here the this this last uh, year's Yardi report and rent growth of 22 percent in Las Vegas last um, uh, last year. So it's been a very very strong market. Let's and, go. Um, yeah, it's got a lot of uh, very very good drivers. So um, of course the entertainment and hospitality it's the biggest driver of Las Vegas, but. Um, since they've added professional sports teams, the first one was the Golden Knights, and then now they have the Raiders. Mm. There's it started to get more of a city feel. There's been a lot of major businesses moving there, a lot of logistics and industrial businesses as well, similar to the Inland Empire. And because a lot of developers were hit so hard in the last downturn in or in the Great Recession in 2008-9 in Vegas. They have not been building enough single-family or multifamily there, so um, the the values have been growing um, at a very very rapid pace. That's been making it very hard to buy there. So we have been trying to buy more, but it is very difficult, and it's been a top-performing market in the whole country. I love it, man. How how do you when you, when you think about these huge rent growths? How do you think, um, obviously, if, if you could predict the future, you probably wouldn't be doing what you're doing today. Um, we'd all be doing something more lucrative, maybe, if you could. But how do you like uh, underwrite rent growth going forward? Do you continue to have it above what's normal? Or do you, like, how do you think about that? Historically, we've always underwrote our properties the same way with a 3 to 4% average rent growth over a 10 year hold. And um, with the way the market's gone, you know, we've luckily, you know, outperformed our, our projections 90 to 95 plus percent of the time. So, um, it's definitely a, the toughest part is, is picking that, that rent growth, um, number, mm -hmm. um, looking back at the 30 years of history, that three to 4% has been the average that we've seen. So, It'll probably come come back and be around that average, um, and I think we're going to stick with those numbers. But with some inflation growth and some wage growth and just some new trends, we might be in for some better rent growth than expected in the near to medium future. Fair enough. You were at uh, NMHC a couple weeks ago, the the big um, multi conference. We don't have to go through the whole thing, but was there like a couple things that you left kind of shocked or was it usually par for the course or anything that kind of stood out while you were there? Yeah, this was my 11th or 12th uh, National Multi-Housing Conference and um, it was well attended, um, you know, very successful and, and, and useful. Um, for the first 10 years that I went, every year, everyone said, cap rates are going to go up next year. Cap rates are going to go up next year. And then it was wrong every year, just like it's been for 30 years. Then last year, half the people said that it's, they're going to go down. Half said they're going to go up. This year, 
everyone was saying they're going to go down. So I don't know what that means. We will see. <laughs> but uh, it's hard for cap rates to go any lower. I mean, we're on our markets that we're seeing with the product that we're looking at. I mean, everything is in the mid three for, a, you know, going in cap rate, m- maybe even lower. So uh, I, it's with the way that the interest rates have been moving, I it seems hard that they go or you know, really it'll be very difficult to go lower, but we will see. Yep. And I didn't get to that. When y'all are uh, financing these, is it usually some type of bridge loan until you get through with your value add and then it's uh, some type of permanent financing with Fannie or Freddie or do you all do it differently? We go immediately to the permanent financing. Okay. So, um, yeah, until the last year, 99% of our loans were with Freddie and Fannie. But this last year, Freddie and Fannie, they became less competitive. So we did a lot of life company loans as well that were structured very similar to the Freddie Fannie fixed program. But we always fix our interest rates. We like to do 55 to 60% LTV and we like to do full term interest only. So that has been our typical model, and we will um, see how long our hold period is, what we want to um, project for our hold, and that's what we'll time the debt with. So we'll do seven or ten year fixed financing with IO for the entire hold. Got it. All right, one more question, just kind of on uh, where the the industry is headed, um, and maybe we can talk about how as it relates to your portfolio or things that you are thinking about, but. What amenities kind of matter going forward um, and what amenities don't matter as much that maybe did 10 years ago? And is there any interesting tech or stuff that you're seeing? Yeah, no, there's been a lot of interesting changes over the last couple of years. Um, And I think the multifamily industry has benefited from um, some of the pandemic trends as people find so much value in their home now where they're working at home, working out at home, spending so much time at home, we have seen our amenities get used um, more than ever. And we have been upgrading our gyms, um, putting outside areas um, in the gyms as well with like the TRXs and a lot of options like that, seen a lot of use. Pool areas with the cabanas, so people have a little bit more space. Um, All the regular amenities, we have been just really focusing on keeping them top of the line. And I think that really helps when you're giving your leasing tour as well. So pools, gyms, um, other amenities like basketball and racquetball and volleyball, and really the the more amenities you can have, it, it might capture a couple extra residents. So we've been definitely focusing on the amenities. In, firm, in terms of technology, there's been a lot of technology upgrades that we've been putting in, just small little Nest thermostats and the um, keyless entry doors and little technology things that have been received very well too. So you know it's a it's a constantly changing uh, industry, and uh, I I think we'll be seeing a lot more uh, improvements uh, in the years to come as well. Okay, all right, we're going to bring it home with this question. You said you've been to over 40 countries around the world, which is awesome. Congrats. That's, I, I wish I could say that. Um, maybe when I'm, my kids are raised, I'll start the, the, the global tour again. 
But you, uh, obviously you probably being in real estate, you're like, um, a lot of us, every time you go somewhere, you're just kind of observing what's going on. Is there anything that the rest of the world does that, that we don't do here in America when it relates to housing, that if you had kind of fewer president for a day, you might say, I wish we could do more of this here in America. It seems to work other fo- other places. Yeah, I love traveling. Been blessed to see a lot of places. It, it's been a couple years now as well with the with the young kids, but I'll, I'll get back <laughs> at it. And um, uh, you know, some of the the main takeaways. You know, you know, obviously the traveling is mostly for fun, so not focusing too much on the business on the travel side. But you know, location is just so important. You know, where you're traveling. You know, which restaurant, which hotel is going to you know be able to charge the highest price or get the most popularity. It's the same with with real estate too. So I mean, really location is just so, so important in picking an investment. And then um, the ability that we have in the United States uh, with uh, how valuable our real estate is, how many people want to have businesses here, want to be in the United States, that really makes me feel very, very comfortable about our, our investments for the future. And uh, really makes me want to keep growing this business uh, um, at the same rate that we've been going, if not more. And I would say, lastly, um, our economy is a scale um, in the United States. We, we really have the ability to uh, get things done efficiently and and manage these properties uh, very very easily with our supply chain and, and the ability to travel and, and ease of getting products too. So. It's it's been great to see so many places in the world, and I always love coming right back home. San Diego is my home and my favorite place to be. I love it, man. Jeff, thanks a lot, man, for your time today. This was this was awesome, and congrats on all y'all are up to. It's super impressive. Really appreciate the time and the invite, and uh, wishing you a great week, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.